Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 67, Revelation, the Lion and the Lamb. And in this episode, we're going to dive into the heart of what I believe is the main thrust of the entire book of Revelation. Um, in fact, I might even argue that this is the main thrust of the entire message of the gospel and is most likely my entire reason for starting this podcast in the first place. And so I cannot possibly contain my excitement. Nothing makes me more eager than to begin the year 2020 by focusing in specifically in the passage in Revelation 5, 1 to 10 that we're going to look at in this episode. And if you listen to no other episode in this entire podcast, hold on to your seat and listen to this one because it's going to have the most potential to transform everything you thought you knew about God and his plans to save the world. And so I'm excited to jump into it. Let's get right into it. Before I dive into the passage that I want to cover in this episode, let me just say a couple of things about this particular uh, podcast episode. Um, if you're following along, you'll notice that a couple of weeks have passed since I released my last episode. We wrapped up Revelation chapter 4 about the third week in December, and I realized that since starting this podcast in September of 2018, that I have in fact released at least one episode every week um, without missing one since that date. And to be honest with you, I was kind of ready for just a little bit of a break. And so I gave myself a couple weeks off. And after thinking about that for a while, it sort of worked itself out really well because here we are. This will be the first episode released in the year 2020. And I'm actually leading our church through a, a particular series where I'm kind of playing off of that theme, as I'm sure lots of other pastors are in churches across the world. But viewing it as we want to see clearly, we want to put on a pair of lenses that helps us understand the Bible so that we can see with 2020 vision and the way we look at God, the way we look at ourselves and the way we look at the world. And so I, I find it exciting to me that Revelation 5, in my understanding of not only Revelation, but of actually the entire Bible, really helps shape our vision in a 2020 way. And yet it does it in a unique apocalyptic style, which we'll look at here in just a moment. But what it also does for, for us, and I just thought I'd share this with you as I sort of alluded to this in the introduction, um, and that is that these thoughts that I've been sharing throughout the course of this podcast are simply things that God has been slowly over time showing me and just transforming the way I look at the Bible and transforming the way I think about Him and myself um, and, and the world as a whole, how it relates to his kingdom, how it relates to sin in our lives and what Jesus has come to do about it. And it's funny because a friend of mine months ago when I first started the Revelation series um, who was listening on the podcast said to me, hey, you know, you're at the end of the Bible now. Like, what's going to be left after doing, <laughs> after doing Revelation? You've already made it to the end. And, and I laughed because it wasn't my intention to kind of jump to the end. But as I shared in the introduction, I have been thinking about doing something like Revelation in a teaching setting of some kind for a long time. And what I realized is my love for the Old Testament actually stems in large part from what I think Revelation is effectively doing. And so I thought I would go ahead and just let you know that the reason why we're doing Revelation right now 
is because I actually read the Old Testament knowing the end of the story, which is what Jesus encouraged the men on the road to Emmaus to do in Luke 24, if, which if you have been following this podcast, you know, was our very first episode that sort of set the trajectory for everything that I've decided to do in this podcast. If people could have read the Old Testament and concluded that their Messiah was going to come as a conquering, ruling king, and when he suffered and died instead, they questioned not whether they had been reading their Bibles properly, but they questioned whether or not the guy, Jesus, that they thought was their Messiah, really was their Messiah. And of course, Jesus invites them to consider that maybe they have been reading the Bible wrongly. And some of the thrust, some of the, the, the most powerful reasons for thinking that, I believe, are rooted right in the passage that I'd like to read for you in just a few moments from Revelation chapter 5. I think this passage forms the, as one author put it, the central and the centering vision for the entire book of Revelation. Where Revelation fits in the Bible, I think, also makes this the central and centering vision of the entire Bible. And so I I just, uh, pulling those thoughts together, it is, I am eager to share this with you. This has captured my understanding of reality probably better than anything else. It does not mean that this has changed my life as much as I want it to, but I do realize that the vision that John receives in Revelation 5 is in fact the vision that is that is meant to transform us more than any other vision presented to us in the Bible. And so I don't think I can set it up any better than that, but I sort of wanted to bring you in along my journey um, just to let you know these are how the thoughts have processed for me. And so as I read this narrative to you, um, this vision that John has, we're just going to talk through a couple things. I'll allude to some points we've made in the past and then try to land right where I think we're supposed to focus our attention. And so with that sort of as a mini introduction, here is Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now that's all that I want to talk about through this particular episode is just these first 10 verses. 
And what I think is important to do is to remember where we were in Revelation chapter 4. And that was with a magnificent, glorious vision of the one seated on the throne, receiving worship from all sorts of angelic and heavenly creatures, um, reminding us of the fact that on the earth, the earthly perspective at the time of Revelation believed that it was the, the Caesar who was on the throne and was ruling in a particular way. And the message that John needs these churches to understand loudly and clearly is that the one seated on the throne is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who has everything under his control. So John's vision, though, is continuing. He's still in heaven, and he looks at the one who is now seated on the throne, and he sees something in his right hand, and it's a scroll. And there's lots of conversation about what this scroll is. And, and as you get to the book of Revelation, particularly in chapter 6 and then in chapter 7, you'll notice there are things like the seals. It was sealed with seven seals. And this is simply, as you can probably imagine, you know, the wax would be dripped over this particular scroll and then sealed with the particular signet ring of a king or of a ruler, in this case, the one seated on the throne. And it was sealed with seven of them. And so what you'll see when the seals are broken is simply the breaking of the, the, the scroll, the seals trying to get inside to the contents of this scroll. And that's a lot of the way Revelation is meant to be written is what are the contents of this scroll. And despite all the debate and the discussion, that the most probable explanation is this is the end time plan of God to judge and save the world. Um, that's really the best way. There is something in the heart of this scroll that is going to be opened up and that is going to reveal to the world how God is going to judge all injustice and how he is going to save the nations. Um, and what we find is that John, um, here's this angel who stands up and says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And so it's fascinating because the Lord God himself decides that's not going to be my role. Um, I created man in my own image. And I want my actions to be carried out through them. And so John starts to look around and can't find anybody in heaven or on earth or under the earth that's able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so he begins to weep. And this is a powerful image. John weeps. He's weeping in tears because he can't find anybody worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And he's afraid that if nobody's found to open the scroll, that means that the plans of God are going to go unfulfilled. And this is devastating to John. He doesn't know what to do with this. And all of a sudden, one of these elders who we saw in chapter four are around the throne. They stop John from his weeping and simply tell him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, a couple of things that I want to say to you about this word that this one of these elders gives to John. First of all, he tells him, don't need to weep. We got this figured out, man. We've got a solution to this. The lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered now, these two images, the Lion of Judah, this, this flashes us all the way back to Genesis 49, and we didn't look at this at any other point in the podcast, which is fine, but Jacob is, is about ready to die in Egypt. Joseph has saved his, his brothers and his father and all their family from a certain famine um, in the land, and Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, and he rose to second position of power and was able to save the people of God. And when 
Jacob and his family came down into Egypt. Jacob is about ready to die. He's excited that he got to see his son Joseph again and be reunited with him. And he turns to all of his sons and he offers them blessings. And to Judah, his fourthborn son, he offers him the promise of the a scepter will not depart from you, but that you will rule all of the nations. And it is from the line of Judah that David comes, who was Israel's greatest king. And so someone from the line of Judah, some powerful, I mean, lion is the embodied image used here, some powerful, aggressive, domineering, dominating figure um, is going to come, who's going to rule, who's able to conquer. But then he also points out that, it, that he has come from the root of David. And so, of course, there's an explicit connection now to the root of David. And this is going back actually to Isaiah chapter 11. And we looked at this um, in, in a number of episodes ago regarding one who will rule the world and strike the nations down with the rod of his mouth. And we looked at this when we talked about the sword that was protruding out of the Son of Man's mouth and how this is not actually an image of violent destruction, but is rather one of the spoken word that has genuine power to transform in this world. But this is the image. It's going back to the image of Isaiah 11, back to the image of Genesis chapter 49, and it is this identity of a person who possesses the spirit of strength and who will rule over the world in power. Now we take all of those ideas and we add to them the end of the statement made by the, by the elder when he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, this word conquered, if you're following in the book of Revelation, is not the first time it has appeared. In fact, I referenced this earlier in the book. When you look at every letter to the seven churches, every one of them ends with an exhortation for the witnesses of Jesus, as we've identified, is the purpose of the churches. The purpose of a lampstand is to shine light onto Jesus, who chapter 1, verse 5 identifies as the faithful witness. The churches are exhorted to overcome, overcome false teaching, overcome temptation to compromise their faith and their stance on the truth with that of the Romans um, so as to avoid persecution, their persistence to overcome in the face of threats of death, their persistence or their call to conquer or to overcome and to not bow out of offering of actual faithful witness to God in this world. Over and over and over, the churches are called to be conquerors, but nowhere in the book to this point have we ever gotten a definition of what it actually means to conquer. And that's exactly what the heart of Revelation 5 is about to tell us. These elders say to John, one in particular, weep no more, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, in verse 6, we read this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, back in chapter 1 of Revelation, John hears a voice behind him like the voice of a trumpet 
saying, write what you see in a scroll and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then John turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. And on turning, he sees seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And way back, if you can remember, to episode 48, which was called One Like a Son of Man, I talked just a little bit about this powerful usage of apocalyptic language and apocalyptic literature that can do things that no other literature can do. And what literature does in apocalyptic is that it can take this idea of combining two separate things and forcing us to hold them together as one reality. So what John hears and then what John turns and sees are actually two parts of the same reality. In other words, they go together, but the way they go together helps clarify both what we hear and what we see. And so I said in that episode that what we hear as a trumpet, trumpet calls throughout the Old Testament were served a handful of purposes. They would call the congregation to worship. They would announce the Lord entering his temple. They would call the congregation or the, the, you know, the people of God to battle. Something like that, or maybe a combination of all of those things, that is what the sound of a trumpet signified. And yet when John turned, he didn't see a horn. He saw a person in the middle of a group of lampstands that he eventually identifies at the end of chapter 1 as the churches. And so what Apocalyptic is doing here, and this isn't the last time Revelation will do this, but John hears something. He hears an elder tell him, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. But when John turns to look now, he doesn't hear anything. What he sees is a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now what is actually happening here is something so fundamental, so potentially transformative, and so, to be honest, quite paradoxical in the way that it is presenting this reality to us that we need to take just a few moments to walk through it. John is told to find a, to find a lion. That the, and in fact, a lion has conquered and has, has overcome or is able to open the scroll in its seven seals. But when he turns to see this lion, he sees a slain lamb. Now, the best way I, I know how to walk us through this, and I would like to, to just take a few moments to, to walk through this, is to just pull together some key insights from a handful of books again. Um, I, I don't apologize for this once again, but the three books that I'd like to use is um, uh, Gregory Stevenson's A Slaughtered Lamb, Michael Gorman's uh, Reading Revelation Responsibly, and then Richard Bauckham's The Theology of the Book of Revelation. And what these men do in a way that I think captures the essence of what's happening here is that they're trying to help us understand how do we, with remaining true to apocalyptic literature, but also remaining true to the message of the Bible, how do we bring together both the vision, um, the, the hearing of a lion, but the seeing of a lamb? And here's how, um, here's how Gregory Stevenson puts it in A Slaughtered Lamb. 
Following its initial appearance in chapter 5, verse 5, the lion disappears completely from the narrative. That title does not occur again in Revelation. The lamb, however, is referenced 28 more times. It is the lamb who provides the model for John's audience. John is not suggesting, however, that Christian victory comes through weakness rather than through power. What he is doing with the transformation of the lion into a lamb is transforming his reader's conception of power. The lamb is the embodiment of the lion, not its replacement. He goes on. The slaughtered lamb is how the lion manifests himself in the world. Richard Bauckham puts it this way, when the slaughtered lamb is seen in the midst of the divine throne in heaven, the meaning is that Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. The symbol of the lamb is no less a divine symbol than the symbol of the one who sits on the throne. Back to Stevenson one more time. The subsequent disappearance of the lion from the narrative is because the slaughtered lamb is the image John wants to hold before us, since it is the image that best captures the pattern of the Christ. It is an image testifying that Christian victory is not found in worldly power structures or in economic security. Christian victory is found in embodying the pattern of the Christ. And then Michael Gorman adds these thoughts here. Two images now that dominate the rest of the book, the throne of God and the Lamb of God. Together, these images constitute the hermeneutical or the interpretive key to the entire book. In his exaltation, Jesus remains the Lamb, the crucified one. He participates in God's identity and reign, making him worthy of worship as the slaughtered Lamb and only as such. This is the consistent witness of the New Testament that the exalted Lord remains the crucified Jesus and this one is the true face of God. When this reading is neglected or forgotten, trouble follows swiftly. Any reading of Revelation and any practice of theology more generally that forgets this central New Testament truth is theologically problematic, even dangerous from its very inception. It is doomed not to failure, but to success. And that is its inherent defect. Human beings, even apparently faithful Christians, too often want an almighty deity who will rule the universe with power presumably on their terms and with force when necessary. This is the image that the two men on the road to Emmaus could not wrap their minds around. They could not wrap their minds around the fact that in John 16, Jesus told his followers, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have conquered the world. The two men on the road to Emmaus could not wrap their minds around the fact that the way God would choose to rule the world, the way God would choose to defeat the kingdom of this world, the way God would choose to defeat Satan himself was to allow Satan to defeat 
him. This is a paradoxical reality. This is a view, as, as I think it was um, Stevenson who pointed out, this doesn't mean that weakness trumps power. It means that God's power is demonstrated through weakness. This is why in 1 Corinthians, Paul can tell the Corinthian believers, the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, it is the power of God. If you want to know what the power of God looks like as he rules the world from his throne, it looks like self-sacrificial power under compassionate love for one's enemies unto death. The slaughtered lamb, the lamb who was slain, being next to the one seated on the throne, and as we will see when we finish chapter 5 next week, is that he shares the worship that the one seated on the throne receives. This is evidence of the way the one on the throne chooses to rule, which I don't have to tell you is diametrically the opposite of the way Rome would exercise its rule and its authority from its throne. This is the paradoxical image that captures everything Revelation is trying to get us to understand. And it reshapes every idea we thought we had about the way God chooses to interact with people, the way God chooses to judge sin. Think about this for a second. How many people do you know, unless you are also one of them, who look at Revelation primarily as this horrific, um, tragic God's anger pouring out on people, judging them angrily. What if we took our ideas of the way God judges sin and filtered them through the way he actually already judged sin on the cross? God taking the punishment of man and the consequences for his sin onto himself, absorbing it into himself and coming back alive on the other side transforms everything we thought we knew about the way God interacts with people in the world. And so um, Gregory Stevenson goes on and and says this, um, the idea that deliverance comes only through a display of power is a consistent human deception that has proven difficult to shake, whether by those ancient Jews who envisioned a Messiah who would marshal an army to lead them in revolt against the occupying Romans or by Americans who constantly build stronger tanks, bigger guns, and even more devastating bombs because we are certain that only military power can ensure security and peace. In Jesus Christ, the expectation of power gets redefined in terms of weakness. And so what John sees and what we now see by hearing about a lion and then turning and seeing a lamb is that God conquers the world not through a show of force but through the suffering and death of Jesus, the faithful witness. Now the fact that the elder was able to say to John that this lion has in fact conquered and as a result is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals What he means then, as he has already been exhorting the churches to conquer themselves as faithful witnesses, is to, as Stevenson puts it often throughout his book, we are to follow the pattern of the Christ. And the thrust of the book of Revelation is not for us to eagerly sit back and wait 
for God to stomp out his enemies, and many times are those we believe are our own enemies, but rather is for the contents of the scroll to be revealed for us to figure out how is God going to properly judge the world, but also eagerly desire that no one in the world perish. What is God's plan for how he is going to destroy sin without having to destroy those who are caught in sin's grip? That's a question that I begged we ask clear back at the beginning of the podcast in the first handful of chapters in the book of Genesis. How is God going to resolve this problem? And Jesus Christ sacrificially offering up himself on the cross is God's answer. And Jesus, as the faithful witness, embodies the reality of what it means for us to be faithful witnesses to him. And so Gorman, Michael Gorman, in reading Revelation responsibly, wraps it up this way. Revelation provides us with a complete deconstruction and reconstruction of our symbolic and narrative universe, our understanding of God, our understanding of power, and our understanding of victory. The slaughtered lamb is now not only our central and centering vision, but also the interpretive lens through which we read the remainder of the book. Divine judgment and salvation must be understood in light of, indeed defined by, the reality of the slaughtered lamb who is worthy of divine worship. And I would like to submit to you that this is what it means to follow Christ. It means that our identity and our calling as human beings made in God's image is so fully understood and embraced the way Jesus defined it that we may very well find ourselves in situations similar to the one he faced when he came. And so the book of Revelation is not here to simply give us a glimpse of what's coming and, oh my goodness, I hope we're not here. No, in order to follow Jesus, in order to be a vital part to the way God's plan for the judgment and the salvation of the world is going to unfold, we are going to need to be instruments in his hands to bring about the same thing for the nations that Jesus brought about with us when he first came for us. God does for us what he wants to then empower us to be able to do for other people. So he loves us first and then empowers us to love others. He sacrifices himself for us first to empower us to sacrifice ourselves for one another. And on and on and on it goes. We get transformed we get caught up in the life he sacrificially gives for us so that we can be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next and find the strength given to us by him to self-sacrificially, compassionately do the exact same thing for the world. This is what it means to be remade in the image of God by the one who himself is the perfect image of God and the exact representation of his nature. And so I love the words that Gorman uses when he actually says that this is the true face of God. 
when God reveals himself to the world, he reveals himself as Jesus. And if Jesus self-sacrificially died for his enemies and took on the ugliness and the sin and the God-forsaken reality that is fallen humanity, then that most accurately depicts for us the heart God has toward fallen humanity. And that he too is willing to stoop and lower himself to the despicable place human beings put him in order to save them. And this is the message of the Bible. This image of the lion slash lamb, the apocalyptic image of what I hear and then what I see, is in fact meant not only to redirect the way we read the book of Revelation, which I'll show you in subsequent episodes, is a powerful tool to use to interpret this book, but it is an invitation just like episode one in Luke 24, where Jesus invites these men to go reread the Old Testament with him in mind. If he's the one who most accurately represents God and he's the one who most accurately represents man and God's intentions for man, then how on earth might we have been misreading the Old Testament all along? Hence the point of my podcast. Hence the point of my excitement. I can't emphasize this enough and I don't feel like I have to emphasize it more. The Bible does this from beginning to end if we have the eyes to see it. And so that really is all the time we're going to take for this week. I love this. I love you. I love just the chance to talk about this freely and openly and to work out my thoughts. And I want to let you know that every one of you who is a listener to this podcast and every one of you who has even briefly interacted with me, offered me some feedback, had a conversation with me, a note on Facebook, an email, anything like that, you have been incredibly instrumental in my own life, in my own growth as a Christian, in my own understanding of the things I want Jesus to set me free from so that I will be more able to follow the lamb that was slain. And so I thank God for you. I thank God for you because as I look back over this podcast, I realize that this is what he's using in my life to help me work out these thoughts, to help me meet him in new ways that I've never known were possible. And so this by no means is a one-way benefit train. I'm very thankful for you and would continually invite your feedback, positive or negative, because I want to learn from you. I want to hear how you receive these things or how you understand them as well, because in community, we really do come to understand God most clearly. And so I hope you have a fantastic start to the year 2020. I hope that your week goes well. Would love to hear from you if you'd like to email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Feel free, as some of you have in recent weeks, to leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these podcasts on. But until next time, have a great week.